Our scripture this morning is Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, we're picking it up at verse 11 and reading through the rest of the chapter. Found in your, if you have a large print Bible from church, it's 1236. It's a regular print uh, edition. It's 972, I believe, is the page number. Galatians chapter 2. Paul has been defending himself against the false teachers who have secretly kind of crept in. They didn't have the guts to face Paul face to face. Instead, they they waited until Paul was gone and absent from these churches, and then they secretly worm their way in and begin to teach their false doctrine, which is the main point and the main focus of the book of Galatians, that there was this teaching going around that man had some part and role in working out salvation, that Christ only made it possible for salvation, but man, by keeping the works of the law, had to finish that. And salvation was nothing that could be guaranteed or assured of because you never did know if you did enough of the works of the law. Paul is countering that in the book of Galatians. In chapter 2, the beginning section, we had Paul going to the to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem consul, and there before Peter, John, and James, laying out that which he had been teaching, that which he had been proclaiming, a justification by faith alone in Christ alone. He had been teaching that. Now the question is, is that right? Are we justified by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, or do we need these works of the law? The decision was made, no, Paul, you are correct. That which you have been teaching, that which you have been preaching is correct. The the people who are advocating that the works be added to that are wrong. That was the decision handed down. You can read of that decision as well in Acts chapter 15. We now pick it up in the aftermath of that decision. Verse 11. Galatians 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eaten with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we 
also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were to be found sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow before the Lord. Our Father, what a privilege it is to read from your word. Father, you have given us a light for our path. And Father, we know that through reading the scriptures, we see what ultimately is true. Father, we pray for the preaching of your word this day. Father, that you would give Pastor Bob what he stands in need of, that your spirit would bear up these words and apply them to our hearts and our lives. And Father, we continue to pray as well for anyone who may be here this morning that is apart from Christ, that today he would see Christ to face, face to face, in all of his glory, his majesty, and his honor. And Father, they too would put their faith and trust in him. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Three things, if you're following the, the sermon outline for this morning, three main points. First of all, the defending face-to-face, that which the passage opened with. Secondly, defining the terms that Paul is using here. And then thirdly, on the, the backside, determining the object of faith. It looks like a lot. It is a lot. But Lord willing, we'll make our way through it this morning. When we began the book of Galatians, I I told you that the book of Galatians is especially important as we consider the Reformation because it is this book that Luther was in the midst of studying. He was finding no peace. He was finding no hope. He was finding no assurance. He was finding no salvation in all the various ways that the church of 1516 was telling him were ways that he could earn his salvation. As he turns to the book of Galatians and is meditating on it for his personal devotion, God, through the work of his spirit, touches Luther's heart. And it is this passage, it is this section, that pricks him. It is this passage that opens his eyes to the glorious truth, that which, in a sense, is a two-parter, because next Lord's Day, we look at the second half of where Luther was and, and, and the, the freedom that Luther found in this text. So if, if you realize that, that perhaps this is sort of half of the story, you're right. The second half of the story, Lord willing, comes next Lord's Day as we delve into the third chapter then as well. But first of all, there's this whole matter of defending face to face. There is a problem here with consistency. This is one of the beauties of Scripture. Scripture does not cover up people's flaws. Scripture does not paint for us people who live perfect lives. We think of Noah. 
all the way through his life. Things are going so well. He builds the ark. Everything goes well. He's so faithful, so perfect. We might almost say according to the, the law. But then we read, Noah became drunk. Hmm, man with a flaw. We think of Joseph and, and all of the, the wonderful things that Joseph accomplished for the people of God. And yet there is a sense in which his father has to rebuke him because he's a little bit too arrogant with his dreams. And certainly there is David. A man that scripture tells us uh, of the beauty of the sounds that he wrote of his relationship with the Lord. And yet scripture doesn't hesitate to reveal to us, not cover up, but reveal to us the sin of adultery, his sin of murder, his sin of being a father who will not deal with his sons. Scripture never covers up people's failures, not even Peter's. See, that's who we're dealing with here But when we use the word Cephas. That's Peter's other name by which he goes. It's referred to in that section of verses 1 through 10 as well. That was referenced at that time. See, there was a need for consistency by Peter. The problem is Peter had sort of had become hypocritical, and that's a sin to be a hypocrite. He had participated in this discussion and this debate and this decision that no, Gentiles did not need to follow the law. Paul points out that at some time later, as Paul is preaching in, in Antioch, Peter comes for a visit. And, and as Peter visits, he's following through on that decision. He's sitting down, eating, having meals with Gentile believers. Everything is fine. Until a delegation from Jerusalem comes, a delegation, we might say, of the ultra-conservatives, a delegation of those who are still adhering to, the, to that view of circumcision, who haven't bought the decision that was made, who are still opposed to it, they come, and Peter, oh, I know these guys' views, maybe I shouldn't hang around with Gentiles, so I won't sit by the Gentiles when we have our meal. I'll, I'll go sit by these guys. Because, because I'm afraid and, and I need to separate myself. I shouldn't be eating with Gentiles a meal. There was no consistency. There was hypocrisy on Peter's part. So Paul calls him on it. Paul, the one who is seeking to be consistent with the gospel message, deals with Peter face to face. There is a confrontation. Because Peter's act was public, the confrontation is public before them all, Paul says. I called him on it. I said, You're, this isn't right, Peter. We made a decision. We made a decision about what is the gospel. And, and you're going against that. You need to repent of that, Peter. You need to change. You need to change your practice and not give in to this circumcision party of these Jewish believers. See, and it was required. You might say, yeah, was it such a big deal that Peter moved his seat? I mean, he just, you know, he was sitting there next to somebody and then he just took his plate and he picked it up and he went over here and sat down. Is that such a horrific thing? Paul says, yes. Well, why is that move so horrific? Because that's the gospel. 
See, what Peter is doing is he's, he's saying, well, you know, I believe the gospel is being justified by, by faith through Jesus Christ, and that comes to everybody, Jew and Gentile. We don't have to observe circumcision. We don't have to observe Old Testament customs and rituals. When Peter picks up his plate and moves over to this group who says, oh, no, salvation is by Jewish custom, Paul says Peter is changing the gospel. That needs to be dealt with. That is a sin that needs to be confronted. We cannot let this pass. If Paul lets this go, then what it appears like is, oh, so the gospel really is believing in Jesus plus being a good and faithful Jew. Paul says, no, that needed to be confronted, that needed to be dealt with. And that's what's going on in those opening verses. Scripture not covering this up. Scripture not pretending like the church always has it right. Scripture reminding us of the fact there are times when there requires great debate and when there requires confrontation. The Lord gave us a command in regards to that, didn't he? Go back to Matthew chapter 18. Jesus told us there were going to be these situations. We are sinful people. We're not perfect. There's going to be times when brothers sin against brothers, when we have disputes, when we have situations. But what is the command of the Lord? What does Jesus command us? Matthew chapter 18, 15. If your brother sins against, him, against you, go and publish it on Facebook. If your brother sins against you, go and Twitter it out to everyone. If your brother sins against you, go to your friends and gossip and tell about it. Right? That's what the text says. Say, no, Pastor Bob, that isn't what the text says. Then why do we do it? Why is that the way so many Christians handle their arguments, handle their debates? They go to somebody else about somebody that they're upset with. That's sin. It's sin because we're going against what Jesus commanded us to do. You say, well, Paul didn't go to Peter privately. No, because I told you this was a public thing. If this had been a private matter, then Paul would have followed that which the Lord instructed. Let's read it. If your brother sins against you, so if you think somebody has committed a sin against you, if you think somebody has wronged you, then go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, let's verify this. You think you've been sinned against. Maybe you haven't. Let's go with others so it isn't just your opinion. Well, I think that's what they meant. Well, wait a minute. Is there another way to see this? Is there another way to understand this? Perhaps the person didn't do what you wanted them to do, and you're offended. You're angry. But maybe there was reason. Maybe their, their action of not doing what you wanted them to do was justifiable. Two or three witnesses. Well, maybe it doesn't work out. Maybe the witnesses are divided. Then Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, then bring it to the church. Let the elders of the church. Oh, you notice that? That's third. That's the third thing. 
So it's not, oh, I'm offended, I go tell my elder. That isn't the way Scripture leads us to believe. That isn't what Jesus told us. We are to go to the person individually. Paul didn't, as I said, because it was a public thing. It was known. And the gospel, the gospel, the very heart of the gospel was at stake. So let's go back to Galatians chapter 2. Having dealt with that matter, as Paul is continuing to defend the gospel, we see it here as well in our second point of defining the term. There are three terms that Paul is kind of rolling over with here. And, and we've been dealing with it for, for several weeks now in this sermon series. And, and it's kind of here where, okay, we need to crystallize this. We need, to, we need to, to, to give shape to and to define what Paul is talking about. And the three words are these. The first one that we'll define is the word law. The second word that we'll define is the word justify. And the third word that we'll define is the word faith. So first of all, when Paul uses the term law here, right, picking it up, you see, page turn, picking it up at verse 15, where he talks about works of the law, works of the law, as we get into 16 and 17 and on, the works of the law. What does Paul mean by works of the law? It refers to the whole law. The only concept of law that Paul understands is the concept of law that is found in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Torah. The whole law. That would mean the laws regarding certain cleansing ceremonies. Certain food laws. It would involve laws about the sacrifices. The whole sacrificial system is included under the term law. It includes all the laws about the judicial aspects. You know, if a woman's caught in adultery, what do you do? You take her out and stone her to death. Paul said, that's law. That's a judicial law. But it also includes, get ready, the moral law. Yes, brothers and sisters, we are not safe because we don't have images in our house. We are not safe because we keep the Sabbath day holy. We are not safe because we don't go out and murder people. We are not saved because we don't steal. We are not saved because we don't take God's name in vain. The moral law, the ceremonial law, the sacrificial law, the judicial law, when Paul used works of the law, it means the whole thing. But it also means something else. Not just that body of law that is found in Genesis through Deuteronomy. It involves as well the interpretations of that law given by the rabbis. Over the course of history and the, the Jewish way and the Jewish tradition, the law that you find in Genesis through Deuteronomy, gets explained. Who explains the meaning of the law? That was the rabbi's task. That was the rabbi's responsibility. So, for example, when it comes to 
a law such as keep the Sabbath day holy, the, the rabbis are charged now with, well, how are you to do that? Well, of course, not work, but what's work? Well, we're going to determine that work would be to walk more than, let's say, a quarter mile on the Sabbath day. If you take more than X amount of steps that would make a quarter mile, that would be work. That's not in the law. That's an interpretation of the law. When Paul uses, we're not justified by the works of the law, he means not just the body of scriptural, Old Testament scriptural law, he means these interpretations as well. But also, it involves customs that derive from the interpretations from the law. So you have the law, you have interpretations, but then you have customs. This is what Jesus is dealing with that day when the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, hey, you know, we got a problem with you. Well, what's your problem with me now? Your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. Yeah? Why is this an issue? Well, you know, you can't really be saved unless you wash your hands before you eat. Really? Isn't that just a custom? See, what, what was happening within Judaism and what's happening with these false teachers there in the province of Galatia is they are saying not just the law, but the interpretations of the law and the customs are needed for salvation. Yes, we're saved by Christ. But boy, you better be washing your hands before meals because if you aren't washing your hands before meals, I don't know if you're really a Christian. Because you have to follow both. So that's what is meant by the law. So when Paul says, we are not justified by works of the law, what he's saying is, anything to do with that law does not justify us. We can't save ourselves even with the best of law, even with the best of the interpretations of the law, even with the best of the customs that come from the law. I'm going to pause and just say something real quick. Kid, that doesn't mean you shouldn't wash your hands before you eat. Okay? That doesn't mean that. And I'm not trying to tell you you don't have to. Okay? Particularly if you've been out there handling, you know, creepy crawlies and everything else. Good idea to wash your hands. But it's not a matter of salvation. You and I don't have the right to look at somebody and say, oh, they just sat down at that table. You know what? They didn't wash their hands. I don't think they're a Christian. It's not the judgment we're to make. That's what was going on. That's what was happening. I would imagine many of you, some of you, many of you who have been on the, the mission field understand this. There's all sorts of things that happen out there when you, you go to foreign fields and you go, Really? I don't know, personally. The problem is, a lot of times, even, especially we as North Americans, kind of go, ooh, I don't know about their salvation, because look at how they're dressed. I'm not sure they can be a, self, a Christian then. Look at what they're eating. I'm not sure they can be a Christian if they eat snake. See, that's what Paul is combating. 
the true essence of the gospel. What does salvation really boil down to? So that brings us to our second term, the word justify. Three quick statements. One, God's declaration of being free from the guilt of our sin. When, when, when we're, de- we, the, it's God declaring us justified. The guilt of our accumulated sin is gone. Or we could put it this way. It's God's declaration of being free from the judgment upon our sin. That, that because we are sinners, we are indeed under God's wrath. We are indeed deserving of hell. We are indeed deserving of God's damnation of us because of our sin. But God, in his justification, declares us free from that. That that judgment that should fall upon us is not going to happen. Or we could state it this way. It's God's declaration of our being free from the condemnation of our sin. As Paul writes in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. That God does not look upon us and go, I know you. Yeah, I justified you, but boy, I still know you. And I'm still thinking about you as a sinner. That's removed because we're justified. Now, don't turn over the page yet. Somewhere on that side, okay, Include this fourth one. It's God's declaration that we are righteous. Justification is God's declaration that we are righteous. See, it's not just that I'm absent of sin. It's not just that I'm absent from the condemnation. It's not just I'm absent from the judgment and stand before God in some neutral position justification is that I have been declared righteous in the sight of God. Justification, you see, is because, as Paul has already built into this, is because of God's grace. Why does God take me as this sinner under condemnation, under guilt, under judgment, Why why does God declare suddenly that Bob the Manon is no longer that, but is now righteous? Grace. Nothing forces him to. Nothing makes him have to do it. He does it of grace. But, But how does God just turn away from that? He doesn't. He turns to Christ on the cross. The perfect, righteous son dying, shedding his blood as a sacrifice, as an atonement for my sin. See, God doesn't just pretend I'm not a sinner. That's not what justification is. God just ignores my sin. Now, that's not justification. Justification is that God sees me as righteous in Christ, because of Christ, because of Christ's righteousness. In our theology, we use the term 
that God imputes, it's a big term, imputes the righteousness of Christ to me. God declares me righteous because Bob's righteous. I could ask for volunteers and I would imagine we'd have a number of people who'd say, no, I'm not in above myself righteous, but I'm declared righteous. Why? Because I have been given, I have had the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. Difference in terminology. We believe Christ's righteousness is given to me. Holy, completely, boom, at once. That's it. God declares me righteous. The previous system that Luther was operating under was it was like an IV drip. I'm a patient in a hospital. Some of you have been there or visited. And there you sit, right? And that IV is put in and it drips. A little bit at a time. A little bit of righteousness at a time. A little bit. A little bit. Drop by drop by drop. But what if I die before the final drop? Oh, I'm not cured. I'm not whole. I'm not righteous. Oh, now please would you say a mass for me. Now please would you donate money to the church for me. Because the drip didn't stop. It didn't do the whole job. I'm not righteous. The bag's still half full. Perhaps we'd see more, to use the medical analogy, rather than the drip, drip, drip. What, what, what our reform view of justification is, it's a shot. It's an injection. And it's over. It's done. Boom! Righteous! This is what God has given to me. This is what Paul is defending. That we are justified. We're made Righteous! Not because of the little acts that we do. Not because these works of following an Old Testament law. Not through the drip, 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 drip. Because as Paul says here in Galatians, that would never save us. There would never be enough drip, drip, drips for us to overcome the sin that we have done. Besides, every drip contains sin. We need the imputed righteousness of Christ so that in a moment, in an instant, I go from being a sinner under God's condemnation to being righteous in God's sight because of Christ. But Paul interjects a third term that we need to understand in this context. That that justification occurs by faith. Four quick definitions. What is faith? It means to believe actively. It means to trust actively. It means to have confidence in actively. It means to be assured of actively. Hebrews chapter 11. Let's turn to there for a moment. Probably the the greatest single chapter dealing with faith, right? Hebrews chapter 11. 
Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of that which was visible. By faith, Abel just thought a lot about God, right? By faith, Abel had some knowledge of God in his head. See, that's oftentimes what we think faith is. Believing. Oh, that's just having it in my head. You read through the whole of Hebrews chapter 11 and, and we have this. By faith, by faith, by faith. There's always action associated with it. See, faith is never dead. Faith is never just in the head. Faith is always in the life. That's why you got to join us, Lord willing, for part two. Because when, when Luther gets to this text, the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. See, faith is living. Faith is active. Faith is involved. To believe, yes. To trust, yes. To have confidence, yes. To be assured, yes. But it's an activity. It's an involvement. It's total, it's complete. Galatians 2. We are justified not by these works of the law. Not justified by that which we accomplish along with Christ. We are justified by faith through Christ. And what is faith? Well, faith is what I do. Faith is my effort. No. Ephesians chapter 2. Faith is God's gift. See, even the faith is the gift of God's grace. Even the faith that I have in Jesus Christ does not come about as my work. That faith is the grace of God. God gives me faith so that I might believe and trust in the righteousness of Christ. And God credits that, grants it, declares that as my justification. So who is it really all about? God. This is the great freedom of release that Luther experienced. This is the great freedom of the Reformation. This is the great truth of the gospel. No, you don't need to sacrifice that pig. No, you don't need to worship the snake. No, you don't need to be circumcised. No, you don't need to do that. No, you don't need to do that. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Period. End. That's it. How do I live as a believer? Now, that's a different question, isn't it? But what is a believer? Somebody who has been justified Somebody who has had the righteousness of Christ imputed to them so that God no longer sees them as a guilty, polluted sinner, but as an heir, a co-heir with Christ. Thirdly, quickly, to determine the object of this faith. Who is the faith in? Is the faith in our faith? Do we have faith in our faith? Well, I'm assured because I have faith. Well, now you have faith in your faith. 
The only assurance that we have is Christ. Fully, completely. The object of faith is never ourselves. It's never even our faith. The object of faith is always Christ. The Christ of Scripture. The Christ of the text. The Christ of the Bible. Not the Christ of our own imaginations. Not the Christ of other revelations. It's the Christ of Scripture. It's the Christ of history. That's why it's always said, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. It's a reminder. Yes, it's through Christ who lived amongst us. It is through Christ who took upon himself human flesh. It is the Christ who suffered and died upon that cross. It is the Christ who rose again. It is the Christ who ascended again. It is the historic living reality of Jesus Christ. It is faith in Christ. He is the object. It is always Christ. And it is faith in Christ alone that saves. Never with, never part, never some. It's not Christ does 50% and I do the other 50. It's not Christ does 75 and I do 25 or 90 and 10 or 99 and 1 or 99.9 and 0.1. It is Christ only. So here comes Paul defending the gospel. I'm ready to confront even Peter on this. I'm ready to lay my life on the line. Here comes Luther. I'm ready to stand up before the church of Rome. And I'm ready to die for this glorious truth. It is faith alone. In Christ alone. By which I stand justified. Before Almighty God. That is the gospel. Faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone. If you agree, and don't just give the, the kind of casual, yeah, amen, we're done with the sermon, let's move on, good, go get my cup of coffee. If you agree, if that is what you believe, if that is the essence, then when I say, and all God's people say, give it a hearty, a hearty, a heartfelt of conviction. Yes, that is the gospel. That is God's truth. And all God's people say, Father, we thank you for your word, for this glorious reminder what justification is. Father, we're humbled by your grace. This doesn't make us proud and arrogant. This humbles us. For we realize, Father, it is grace, your grace, your unmerited love. I didn't deserve grace. I deserved your wrath and condemnation. But out of your grace given to me the righteousness of Christ. You've justified me through a faith in Christ. And even that faith, Father, it wasn't like 
I studied so hard I came up to the conclusion. Or I heard a great argument. It's your gift. It's your gift. We're humbled by it. And we thank you for it. And we seek, even as Paul writes in the next chapter, to live by faith in Christ alone. It's in his name. All God's people say, Amen.